0: There's a false dichotomy. There are creative people and then there are others. No, 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 no. If you were born with a head, you're a creative person. It's just whether you practice that, whether you lay down that pathway in your brain through repetition and use over time, you get good at it. But everybody has that ability.
1: That is adventurer, self-experimenter, and advertising legend, Todd Sampson. And this is episode 236 of the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. Welcome to the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. I'm so happy that you're here. This is episode 236 of the show with true Australian icon, adventurer, TV producer, advertising heavyweight and habitual self-experimenter, Todd Sampson. You can connect with him directly at Twitter. Uh, He's Todd Sampson Oz. So T-O-D-D-S-A-M-P-S-O-N-O-Z. Or Zed, if you're American. The new series of his TV show, Body Hack, Body Hack 2.0, begins this week in Australia, Thursday night, 8.30 p.m., May 31st, on Network 10. Uh, More about Todd in just a moment. If this is your first episode, Hi. Hello, uh, I'm Osher Ginsberg. I work in television in Australia. I used to work in radio. I'm about to be a published author. Very exciting. And in Australia, sometimes I'm on the television where I count roses, I deliver date cards. Occasionally, I officiate competitions between prospective suitors of men or women as they vie for the attentions of our bachelor or bachelorette on the Australian versions of the bachelor or The Bachelorette, I'm very lucky to have my job that I do at the moment. But when I'm not working on my television job, every Monday for the last 235 Mondays in a row, I've been here in your phone or your laptop, or your iPad, or if you're on Qantas or Jetstar, in the back of the seat in front of you. Uh, But I've been here having a conversation that you get to be a part of with someone that you might know, someone that you might not know, but no matter who I'm talking with, I guarantee that each week you'll hear something that you'll go, oh, yes, that resonates with me. Just something that'll hopefully make today a little better than yesterday. What else can I tell you? I'm 44, I'm married to a beautiful Fijian ray of sunshine called Audrey, and I'm the stepfather to a brilliant, brilliant teenage girl. Oh, and I have a different brain. Uh, in my life, I've been told by very educated men and women as we sat in gloriously comfortable psychology office and psychiatry office furniture um, – my guy in Los Angeles had original Ray and Charles Eames recliners. They were glorious. Uh, I've been told as I sat in those offices that, oh, I can, my brain can be described as one that has uh, OCD or PTSD. At times, I've been told, oh, what's happening there? That's psychosis manifesting as paranoid delusions. How's the chair? Comfy? Hard news to take. But when you put your foot on the ottoman, it's a little easier. Beautiful. I want to have one of those chairs one day. Anyway, at times in my life, I've apparently been on all the meds that were available, uh, enough to stop a rhino at one point, and it did, in fact, help me a great deal, save my life. But now, under supervision and with a deliberate discipline about what I do to manage my brain in the absence of those meds, I am actually off medication altogether. Not to say that I'll be this way forever, but that's just where I am at the moment. And so with this podcast, I just try and talk to you and talk to my guests about how they manage life and the associated stresses of life in an effort to learn how they do it and also in a way to try and make today a little better than yesterday for me and you. Just something that I can hope to apply and hopefully you can apply to your day to try and move the needle on the dial, just one more point into the positive. Little changes, that's all you need to make, little changes in a deliberate direction every single day. I do want to send a lot of love today to the Facebook group that is growing daily. A couple of weeks ago, I started a Facebook group as an experiment and it's cracking on very well. Just search for the Osher Ginsberg podcast in Facebook groups. You'll find me there. You know what? I'll put a link in my Instagram bio to it. That's how you can find it easy. Uh, There's a great chat there. There's great support there. There's great discussion there and the occasional recipe which I must say I am enjoying. I hope you can come and join the conversation. Um, yeah, I'll put the link in the Instagram bio. You can just click there. It'll take you to the page that links you to it and you can go from there. Right. So to check in with you this week, uh, what can I tell you this week? Ah, oh, it's five months now pretty much to the week, five months since I stopped taking meds. And three months since I've been on a deliberate campaign of uh, physical fitness and nutritional awareness as a way to support me going off the meds that were helping me get by. It was rough at first as my brain tried to cope, to operate in a fashion that was approaching normal, but every day, sometimes every hour, I'm getting there a little closer. Just have to keep steering that, you know, if you've ever been on a boat, you've just got to keep that steering wheel lined up with a compass point that you're aiming at, constantly readjusting as you go. I will tell you one thing that's really interesting, and it ties in with my guest today about rewiring your brain and things like that. My autonomic nervous system is starting to form neural connections with my emotional Reactions. Now, this may seem like, yeah, duh, everyone's got that. Well, no. In the past, for reasons that are indeed quite complicated, my ability to experience reactions in my body around joy, around happiness, around sadness, around grief had become difficult to access, to say the least. Right, but being on meds to control the extreme physical responses to the rumination and perseveration of a catastrophe that I was going through when I was in the psychosis, when that was in my life, it, it dulled those responses to pretty much nothing. Now it was nice to not be nuts, but after a few years of it, you kind of miss feeling, you know, I don't know, feeling a sense of warmth and joy as you watch a small puppy playing or you hear a, a key change and the big note in the big song that used to be your favorite. You know, you kind of miss that feeling in your body. And, and to me at least, when I was on meds, and with the meds that I was on, uh, the world which was now dulled down to a level that I could dulled down to a level that I could operate well within it, the world kind of became a mm, like a dull lump of approximated shapes all made out of blue tack. Kind of spongy, but no surface or feeling any different to the next. That was very safe for me to operate in, but after a while you miss it. Now, once I got off the meds, slowly, slowly, mind you, over the course of six months, in fact, it was about a year ago, this time last year, that we first made the choice to me and my Dr. Adam went down You know, from there. It was the first time that we just started to decrease the dose. Well, from there, the world, I guess it started to not be so blue tacky and feel a little more like sandpaper in places. That was tough to deal with. But when I got off meds altogether, it was rough, to say the least. Um, I'll tell you more about that in the book that I'm writing. But Now that I'm off meds, my body's starting to extraordinarily and incredibly, my body's starting to wire autonomic responses into emotional reactions to things around me. This never used to happen. Like so the other day, right? The other day, I was in a meeting about the book that I'm writing, right? We're in this big high-rise building in the middle of the city. We're in a fancy boardroom. There's a beautiful view. There's lots of people in there. There's about seven or eight people in there. It was my team, their team, marketing teams, everybody. And I was talking with my editor about how important it is that we forge ahead and talk about the side effects of being on the meds I was just talking to you about, being on the antipsychotics. We've got to talk about it, not only just for people who need to be on them, but also for people who live with them, around them, people who are in love with them. And as we spoke, as I spoke, as I was telling them, this is why it's important that we write this, suddenly it became hard to talk and it became hard to see, things got blurry, and then I realized, I'm crying. In the middle of a sentence, in the middle of a meeting with the bigwigs at the publishing house, I started crying. That's never, ever happened in my life. That my body is now coming along for the ride when I speak about things that I care about, that's new for me and it's pretty, it's pretty good. I'm not going to lie. The other day I was talking to a person at the gym, somebody I train with. She was asking me about, you know, oh, which podcast did I listen to? And I thought, oh, look, you know, here's one that might resonate with you. There's a bloke from New Zealand called Fraser Bailey. It was a couple of weeks ago. And I was talking about, you know, how his story of using resistance training and, and nutrition to provide him with support to conquer his brain and the change, to change the way his mind worked, to overcome bipolar, to overcome, um, ADHD, to overcome depression. And as I spoke to her, my arms just broke out in goosebumps. Now this this may seem entirely normal to you. You might be like, oh, yeah. but for me, it's it's an entirely new thing. I've gone through most of my adult life not having that happen just randomly. Sure, look, it happens in movies when it's all you know designed for for that to happen. Like when Moana does the thing at the end with a thing, and then the thing changes. You're like, oh, of course I get it then because I'm you know not dead. But Because it's designed, you know, completely to give me that emotional reaction, but just to pop up in the middle of a sentence that I'm having, you know, like a high-profile meeting or just like on a treadmill, that's brand new. But that's a sign. That's a sign, my friends, that things are starting to put themselves together in a healthier way up in my brain, and this is good news. This is good news. But it does take a lot of work. It takes a lot of talk therapy, a lot of journaling, a lot of being mindful about what's going on. Why am I doing that? Oh, I'm doing that thing. Ah, I've got to watch out for that thing. It takes proper nutrition. It takes physical discipline throughout the day. All that stuff, it gives my brain the support it needs to make those new connections. But most of all, it takes the loving and safe relationship that I'm in to help my brain feel safe enough to have these reactions. And I can't tell you how simply being with Audrey is just so vital in healing my head. I'm very very lucky to have that. But on top of all this, I just I think the most important thing to talk about is I just can't expect it to happen by itself. I can't read an Instagram post about making a delicious meal that shows me all the ingredients and the method and then the finished product and then sit on my couch expecting my dinner to magically happen. No, I've got to go to the supermarket. I've got to get all the things. I've got to come home. I've got to follow the method. I've got to prepare it properly. I've got to be patient while I wait for it to cook. I need to put in action if I have any expectation of change. And that is what I'm finding time and time again. So I just wanted to let you know that that's what's going on in my head this week. It's, it's actually started to happen during podcast interviews. Um, I'm a few weeks ahead, so you'll hear it coming up. But there's there's a few coming up where I, I just suddenly start crying. I start having tears in my eyes when my guest is telling me something emotional. Now, this is a good thing for me. It might freak my guest out a bit because we're sitting across my you know kitchen table. And there I am crying in front of them. But it's a really good thing for me. It means that I'm approaching the zone where other humans seem to be able to interact with each other. And soon they'll be able to see that, oh, look, he can talk and be human like the rest of us. And hopefully our interactions will approach a greater connection than I've previously experienced. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, so yeah, so that's what's going on with me. <laughs> Sorry that went that went that went for a long time. Uh what's going on with you? What's going on with you? Let me know. Uh you can hit me up at the Facebook group, you can check in there or shoot me an email. Send us your email at gmail.com. Don't forget that. If you do if you do uh, pre-order the book, you can get it now at 21% discount. You can get it right now. Um, the link's in my Instagram bio. If you do buy it early, email me on that email address and I'll shoot you something special to say thank you. I get a real kick sending those out. I do love that you and I get to be in touch. Speaking of being in touch, thanks for all the Podsy pictures this week. That's P O D S I A. It's a picture of where you listen to the show. You're probably listening to this on a device with a camera. So take a photo of what you're looking at right now. Email it to me. Send us your email at gmail.com. Real easy. Some brilliant ones this week. People were baking, hiking, cleaning, driving, exploring all parts of the world, right around the world. It's so great to see. You can email me. You can tag me on Instagram. I'll try and share the best ones. I do love that I get to go on this adventure with you, this adventure in digital broadcasting. It's freaking awesome that you and I get to experience a conversation and a really intimate form of conversation that that's just you and me and a guest, just you, me, and the other person sitting on my kitchen table. And I love that I get to bring that to you every week. And I'm particularly thrilled about today's guest. Todd Sampson is an adventurer, award winning documentary maker, television presenter, and businessman. He's originally from Canada and has made a home for himself and his family in Australia, where he has risen to become one of the most influential business executives in the country. He's known to Australians as the bloke in the t shirt on one of this country's most successful and longest running panel shows, Gruen, where I'll let him describe it in the show, but it, it You don't have a show that goes for 10 years by accident. Uh, Todd's TV career has since taken off on a life of its own. Aside from his TV work, which I'll talk about more in a second, Todd's business resume is formidable. He's the former CEO of the massive ad agency, Leo Burnett. He currently sits on the board of Qantas. He sits on the board of Fairfax. He's an active investor and advisor in Australia's startup scene. But first and foremost, Todd is an adventurer. As you'll hear, his quest for adventure and finding what lies beyond where he is comfortable has led him to every corner of the globe, putting himself in places and situations that push the limits of human endurance in an effort to see what is on the other side of where most people will turn back. Now, somewhere along the way, Todd began to film his adventures. And that has led him to an incredibly successful career as a documentary maker, writing and producing shows like Redesign My Brain, Life on the Line, and most recently, Body Hack. I'm fascinated by Todd. His constant quest to discover what else he and in a way, all of us are capable of when we take ourselves outside of the climate-controlled, low danger, low threat, low energy output, constant caloric intake world that we've built for ourselves. That that quest is just so inspiring to me. In the, in the last few months, I'm discovering what can happen for me when I go beyond what I thought I was capable of. It's been transformational, to say the least. With Todd, he's doing it on, a whole nother, he's on another level altogether. And you can see the results as he pushes himself into the limits of human endurance, not just for great footage. Anyone on YouTube can grab a camera and do the stuff that Todd's doing, but he's doing it to see what else he will then be capable of with the knowledge that he can do such extreme things and come out the other side and indeed explore other people who go even beyond where he's prepared to go. That stuff is fantastic and fascinating, and its I could have talked to Todd for hours you'll hear that i'm just like oh tell me about this tell me about that look but we did a long podcast this is a long one you might need to listen to this one twice i think you'll get a real kick out of it the new season of body hack starts on thursday night here in australia 8:30 p.m on the 10 network the network that i work on don't miss it this one's a real life changer the things that he gets to show in primetime television are life changer if you enjoy this conversation please let todd know he is on twitter at Todd Sampson, Oz, T O D D S A M P S O N O Z. Enjoy this conversation with the adventurous Todd Sampson
0: maybe someday I'll interview you.
1: Uh, I look forward to that. I was really grateful that you asked actually. I'm rolling. Um, I was really grateful that you asked because I've got a book coming out in, um, a couple of months and I was actually really hoping that I could do that for one episode of this podcast. And, hmm. um, you know, when you asked on the email the other day, I really couldn't think, oh, I couldn't think of anyone better.
0: Yeah. So but, I, 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 asked because I've been listening to the, uh, po- I'm, I'm a ferocious podcast absorber, but I hadn't listened not because I not because I hadn't listened to your podcast much. Not because I wouldn't listen to the podcast. I didn't know it existed. Oh, really? And I and so I backlogged it, and then I started going through it. And then my conclusion, even though there was a lot of interesting eclectic guests, was that you were the best guest. <laughs> like I would tune in for the first ten minutes to kind of get an update as to oh, what yeah, yeah. was going on in your life, because yeah. for many reasons the life you live. But also, it's good to have a male positive role model in the mental health space, M- meaning someone who openly talks about the struggles we all have, but we internalize. So uh, I'd be happy to interview you at some Oh, sense.
1: mate, that'd be amazing. And like, honestly, a big, a big part of that is just one day I, I was, it wasn't until about episode 35 or episode 40 that I started doing that. One day I was just having a shit day. I just turned it on. And in the intro, I just started talking about rather than my guest and everything else, I just started talking about this is what's going on. Mm. And um, I know that, Through the work that I do, um, I sit on the board of directors at SANE Australia, which is the oldest mental health um, support uh, charity in the country, helps Mm. people living with complex mental illness, like from the lower and lower end of the spectrum, the end of the spectrum that starts around kind of very intense anxiety, OCD, where I live, and then way up into like quite, you know, schizophrenia and bipolar and et cetera, et cetera, when it goes right up into there, like right up into the NDIS, you know, stuff uh, supporting the families there's four million australians who are affected by um complex mental illness like people who are families and friends and whatever anyway so once i started working with those guys like stigma is such a massive thing but if you just talk about it and you talk about it in a way of like you know the, the analogy i would use todd is you know if you had diabetes you were born with it yeah all right but you just neck muffins all day Hmm. and did nothing but drink beer and eat donuts. I'll be like, ah, I get Hmm. uncomfortable when you do that because you're going to die. And you're like, yeah. fuck it, I don't care. I'm not caring for myself. But if you go, no, I've got diabetes, so I have to weigh my food, and I have to take my blood, and I have to do this. You're like, oh, okay, you're managing it, fine, no problem. Here we are in the workplace. Here we are working together. Oh, he's got diabetes. He's just got to go do a little thing for. Oh, he accidentally ate something that was wrong. He's got to take the afternoon off. Everyone's mm. cool with No one gives a shit.
0: Yeah, totally.
1: You know, and this is that's try. I guess that's the analogy that. I- so yeah, yeah and, it's and, just mod- by and modern
0: science it. has given us a tangible hope. Mm. In the notion of brain plasticity. And I, I mean, I spent six years doing a science documentary about the brain called Redesign My Brain. And the fundamental premise of that is we all have the ability to positively correct our brain at any age, regardless of who you are. And regardless of how much or how unique or different your brain may be, I met this guy during the series. It never made the cut. And uh, he had one third of his brain removed. So he was having horrible uh, seizures. He would, he'd be lying on the ground and he would say demon, he would be screaming at the demons that were coming to him while he was lying there having full seizure. So they, they obviously went through a a large amount of misdiagnosis as is what normally happens. And they got to the point where they believed in America that he had to have parts of his brain removed, a little bit of his hippocampus. And so they removed a third of his brain. But if I sat him down here now, you wouldn't know other than he's slightly different. But if I judge people by slightly different, that's the majority of people I know. So because the brain has this remarkable, he's got a third missing and it just can rewire and put itself together in a way to allow you to cope because we are arguably the ultimate survival machine.
1: We really, really are. And uh, particularly around the rewiring part, I've been in the last few weeks, a few months, I've been learning so much and like trying to educate myself so much about the the, the, the brain's reaction for the anxiety, the difference mm. between amygdala based anxiety and cortex based anxiety, mm. and understanding how my bodily reactions. Now, the amygdala based anxiety could be if I, t- I see a, a picture of one of my triggers or it passes, like yeah. a particular trigger word comes in conversation, I might not be consciously aware of it. But then suddenly I'm out walking the dog and I feel like someone's grabbing me around the throat. Yeah. And I have to think back. So, what was that? What was that? Oh, I was scrolling through Instagram or something and that's what it was. All right, and then rather than just once you identify it and then you have the ability to then because then the the, the, cor- the cortex has is very unable to undo amygdala-based anxiety and 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 vice versa. Like it's it's really fascinating stuff. And when you talk about neuroplasticity, um it's something that I really I I was begging for when I was in psychosis, when I was, I was mm. like, just fucking, I'd do anything, mm. anything to have acceptance of, of this, this thing that I can't get out of my mind. But it wasn't until that I was on this, we had to change around a lot of medication until we got it right. And that's unfortunately the, the case a lot of the time, and it's not like you just take a nurofen in twenty minutes, you feel better. You kind of have to wait, yes. sometimes weeks, sometimes months, for things to be okay enough to judge if the dosage is right. So it's very, very tough because you've got to kind of grit your teeth and get through it. But once me and my doctor Adam, the psychiatrist, once we um, figured out the dosage, and I was on this particular dosage, things were able. The analogy I would use is if you've ever busted a, a knee snowboarding or whatever, you, they give you a big brace, and you're inside the brace you get to then work the muscles in a correct plane of motion until yes. they get strong enough to take the brace off. Mm. So that's what was happening. My brain was able to work in a correct plane of motion and then slowly, 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 slowly came down off the meds. And now I have what I didn't have when I was in that unhealthy state. My brain wasn't able to do what you were talking about. The the neural connections were so powerful, I couldn't actually mm. rewire them. But on these other meds, I had the ability to then – teach well my brain healed to the point where it could start to do that again and i really feel that now that i'm able to move over a course of weeks from one place to another whereas before i just i was stuck Mm. um and i think that's important to recognize that some people's brains aren't able to do that yes so it's
0: interesting you say that though because i think a guest that you should try and get you won't get him live because he is in america and he's I don't know, He's nice he guys people travel. all the time. Yeah, Dr. Michael Mersnick. So the founder of Brain Plasticity, wow. he was in my film, right? So he was, in, he was in both episodes, both series. And he spent 50 years of his life working on the brain and he would claim, he's got nothing against drugs because drugs are very useful. They're, they're useful for different people for different reasons. Mm. So there's no knocking that, but he has a, he's had a, um, his patent in for non-drug treatment of depression. Wow. But the FDA in America for 15 years. And of course, their response is, no fucking way. And he would claim, he would argue that there's been plenty of studies in the world, and you, you know those studies, that can complement drugs, can take away the drugs, can, that can help people rewire and overcome some of these um, things that become acute in others, but are daily uh, things for other people, anxiety, depression, paranoia, things that, that you may not have at an acute level, but you may carry daily, and you can manage those. I'm always teaching my girls, I've got two young girls, Coco and Jet, uh, 12 and 8, about awareness and breath. And the reason I'm doing that is I'm, not, I'm just trying to get them to reflect back how they're feeling so they have an awareness of that, as you said, because when you are walking on the street and something triggers you, chances are that trigger may work at a subconscious level or you have no conscious awareness of that trigger. But if you get used to your body and how it feels, the feeling of that trigger or that jab, emotional jab that happens, just simply the awareness of it is a big step towards mental health, especially for children, because they're at schools where they're constantly being, you know, indirectly or directly bullied or pressured, especially young girls. Uh, And so it's, Awareness in itself, body awareness, how you feel, how it feels in you is a good skill for young kids.
1: Yeah, that's extraordinary. I, I wish that I knew this stuff that I knew now when I was a kid. I, you know, I, I, I got trotted off to doctors because I was weird, you know, and, then, and the doctors didn't know what to do with me. So we
0: sat there playing Battleship
1: <laughs> <laughs> for 300 bucks an hour or whatever they were paying. It was, how's,
0: how's the coffee? Is the coffee all oh, right? Oh, geez, I must say it's, it's really nice but it is, it feels a little bit like rocket fuel. Like I'm so hesitant because it looked like ritualistic when you made it for me and I'm new to caffeine. So I've just- Tell me
1: about how you got through your life without caffeine. So
0: I didn't, it was, it was, I didn't do a lot of drugs when I was young, but it was a drug I avoided at university. So my parents didn't drink it. So I had not touched it for 40, not even a sip for 42 years. And then one day, unfortunately, I was filming Redesign My Brain and I was in America in the, in the world's best scanner, brain scanner. Second best scanner in the world is in Melbourne, by the way. And I was being scanned and they were doing a take and the crew wanted to have a coffee break. So they said, let's, can we have a break before he does this? Because they're not allowed to be around me and stuff when, I, when machine's on. So I just said out loud, I don't need a coffee break because I don't drink coffee. I'd rather just push through. Of course, the scientist then jumps from behind the counter, three of them, and says, do you mean that literally or figuratively? And I said, literally, I've never tasted it. And they were like, oh, please, could you do us a favor? Please, could you take a coffee and then we put you in the scanner? And so being a a self-experimenter, I said, sure. So then the question was, which coffee? Now, Toby Ralph, who is my shooter, he's this massive six foot two Australian guy, 110, he says 100, but 110 kilo Australian (laughs) guy, big guy. Yeah. And he always drinks these little double macchiatos. Yeah. So I say, oh, I have a double macchiato. And I remember the crew laughing and the scientists going, I don't think you should start there. (laughs) So they get me a double macchiato. I don't quite know what to do with it. So when I, I step outside the room where the machine is, and then I just skull it like I shoot it down. And everyone's looking at me, and then the scientist says, okay, are you ready to go in? I get in, you know, you get in these scanners. If you've unfortunately been in these scanners, it's like Tron. They lock you down, yeah. your head's locked into place, and they give you an emergency reject button in your left yeah. hand in case something bad happens. It's a small tube. Small tube. And I get in, and it's like, mm-hmm. I go inside the scanner, and I've got the rejection in my, my left hand, and they start doing this sort of spatial IQ test on me. I would have been 10 minutes, And I pressed the ejection button and I come out five scientists come from around the glass. They're all staring at me. And all I could say was, is everyone on this shit? (laughs) 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 And I've been addicted ever since.
1: (laughs) Yes, everyone is on this shit and it's, it's an extraordinary drug and you know, if you, I think there's something in a, a, a like a, like a backtrack around caffeine around the world because, uh, you know, the, the where caffeine grows in the world that those areas are under enormous threat from climate change, and so we are we're looking at a future perhaps without coffee. Yeah. Um, so you could you could start there and maybe go back to a time when, you know tea, wars were fought mm. it, people were, millions of people killed by the British Empire trying to find tea, right but then what that caffeine did for the industrial revolution yes. is it allowed workers to go all day remember I told you about a cavoodle that was about to come in
0: oh, there we are <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, wow! You are really excited. Are you on caffeine?
1: The dog, no, that's just a cavoodle. The dog walker just uh, returned. No, because Frankie's—he's wow. he's learning how to be around other dogs. So he goes for a walk with a pack every week, um, with other dogs, bigger dogs. So he get he learns how to kind yeah, of cool be around them. Well, uh, yeah, he's a good guy.
0: Um, you know, but the thing with caffeine, right? It is as you were saying about the cast that allows your arm to be in a position that yeah. allow it to heal. In many ways, caffeine is the artificial brain cast because it doesn't let you, it locks you into this energetic good space, but it doesn't let you retract to where you really are. It sort of blocks. I mean, its whole thing is it it doesn't make you so much give you energy as it does block your feeling of tiredness, but you are actually tired. Mm. So it it is a weird deceptive drug that's so common that we just go, whatever, let's just take it.
1: I take it every single day. Uh, empty
0: stomach in the mornings?
1: Empty stomach in the morning. Yeah. yeah. And a, a tiny little cup. And I, I've, I've honestly, a, a lot of the Australian series of The Bachelor, if not all, my entire radio career has been brought to you by Caffeine. And, um, Pretty much every time there's a rose ceremony on The Bachelor, yeah. uh, it's, it's, you know, sometimes at one, two in the morning, maybe later. And uh, that's, that's coffee. That's coffee. <laughs> it's an, it allows, yeah. But the trick is, because um, often Bachelor mansions, uh, we've shot, shot in a few of them, but often they're quite far away. The trick is to back time the intake of the coffee so that by the time you get home, you're You can make the drive home, but then you can get to sleep. Yeah. So I often do twenty
0: minutes in and six hours out, isn't it? uh, Oh, yes, something along those
1: lines, (laughs) something, something along those lines. Matt, look, I'm just so grateful that you're able to come on the show today. Um, There's so many things I want to talk to you about, but oh, you're about to
0: eat cookies that Georgia cooked. I know they look so good. I feel rude if I don't. No, no, they're they're
1: very high in protein. Uh, They're made uh, with lupin, which is this extraordinarily powerfully. Protein full bean, that is. It's the highest protein uh, legume well, that there they're is. they're really nice. Yeah, yeah. She made them last night. Georgia once cooked, well, I think when she was 11, she cooked me a vegan cheesecake from scratch with no recipe. The kids are, she's an extraordinary kid. Yeah, and she, now, now she's 14 and, and just creating things like this. Yeah, she's a remarkable kid. Um, your new series, Body Hack, version 2.0, uh, you sent me the first episode the other day, and um, there's this thing in television called the Super Tease, which is if you watch the Ma- MasterChef premiered last night, and it's basically the first five minutes of like, in 2008 we started, 2009, just like the first five minutes of the show is, ah oh, here's what's coming up.
0: Holy fuck, man, after the
1: Super Tease, <laughs> the first two minutes is like, holy shit, did you <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. I get I when I see that super tease I get exhausted. Although my girls saw the super tease and all they can do is take the piss of that voice. Now when I you know, if I'm helping with their homework, they'll suddenly just turn around and go, How far can the human body go? <laughs> like they're always they're always ripping into me, you know, because of the super tease. But it's it's relatively easy to have a super tease that's as action-packed as that because the whole series is built around going out and exploring action-packed, interesting cultures. Yeah. So it's I think it m- must be harder to do if it was like a studio based yeah. super tease. Like, how do you? Yeah. I don't know how you do that. Maybe
1: I have a voiceover booth in the other room, and I previously on The Bachelorette, I do all that. Sometimes, uh, <laughs> so, some, sometimes I George's Georgia, well, she hates it. Uh, she goes down the beach with her friends, and I do it in the Bondi Rescue voice.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Although you're perfect
1: for that. I've been doing it since season one. <laughs> it's it's, 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 it's a voiceovers are a sweet gig if you can get them, man, because you, you just, you just uh, need that unique voice, though. That's all. Uh, well, yeah, you've got to do that. Um, why – obviously, you're a very curious person, Todd. Mm-hmm. When did you first realize that you were more interested in how things worked than the other people around you? How old
0: were you? Mm, so I grew up in um, – I grew up in Canada in Sydney in Canada – weirdly enough which is in a very Ontario? small no it's in northeast so it's at the kind of tip of Nova Scotia uh, an island called Cape Breton Island where the sun doesn't shine mm, it's where the titanic went down oh brilliant Yeah, so you're under snow when i was a kid i was under snow for 5 months a year easy and it's pretty cold but it's uh, it's a bit like a Huckleberry Finn lifestyle there. You know, I, I was a young kid uh, and I knew my parents uh, had no – didn't go to high school. I had no kind of formal education. And I knew then that I wanted more. I didn't know what more was. And I knew that I would not always stay on that island. I had a kind of weird island mentality. I wanted to see the rest of the thing that it's attached to. Uh, but obviously couldn't afford to travel or didn't have any opportunities. I never left there, but I was super inquisitive. So I I was always adventuring, even as a seven-year-old, I'd be off. I would get up if it was the weekend and I'd be gone, take a pack and I'd be gone. That's it. I wouldn't come back until nighttime. And those adventures, some had criminal elements to them. And other times it was just literally exploring the forests. And I spent a lot of time in nature, a lot of time climbing, a lot of time doing things that I look back at now and go, I would never do that as an adult. And I, I guess I just, I just built this interest in the world. And then I was really bad at school. I was just like my friends, my, like just bombing out and not caring. And then I, something clicked where I realized that education was going to become the passport. That if I did well academically. I, it would literally be my passport. I could go off this island and go other places. And that switch cha- completely transformed my life. How old were you? Uh, I was going into grade, so I was in grade not um, seven. Right. So th- that's a weird thing that happened, right? So in Canada, at the time, in Cape Breton, the schools are segregated. So they're segregated according to how they, smart they think you are. Often, it has economic attached to it. So there's so for example, there's grade so grade 6 would have 6 a b c d. A would be for all the rich kids who have pretty good run at it and good background and then like f or d would be for the kids that are throwing staplers at the teacher. That really they it's just daycare. They're not really learning much. Mm. I was in the C. So one up from the D. So I wasn't throwing the staplers, but I was the drifters, you know, so there's no chance you're ever going to amount to anything. And I was loving that because that's what my friend, my friends were in D. Mm. So I was awesome. like, cool. I'm like, I'm one up. I'm in C. And then, uh, m- I met a teacher called, his name was Mr. Risk. He was a science teacher. And I just quickly fell in love with science. So I bombed everything else except for that one subject because that one subject was about explaining the world, how things work. And I was like, well, this is cool. And uh, he then said to my mother that I need to do this test And of course, my mother, who doesn't know anything about tests, said, sure, he can do it. She volunteered me for it. So I did a test. Now, that test must have been some kind of aptitude test, which I didn't know about. So I did the test. And I must have scored well in the test. Because the next year, when we were lining up in the schoolyard, they called out D. I wasn't in D. I didn't think I'd be in D. They called out C. I wasn't in C. And I got a bit concerned. I was like, OK. They called out B. And I wasn't in B. And then I thought, it's a mistake. Because I'm definitely not in A. They called me for A. I then go into A and I, talk about the odd man out. I was the odd man out by a lot. I show up in my ripped leather jacket and, you know, smokes in my pocket, hidden away. And all of these sort of nerdy, studious kids were all there. And then I just, I remember thinking, it's, I went home and I was crying. And I said to my mother, it's a mistake, mom. They put me in the wrong class. Can you go in? And, and she went in and Mr. Risk said, that's where he's meant to be so he needs to stay there. And then it became the awareness of education means I can do other things in my life and competition. There was no way I was going to be the worst of that class. So I tried to be the best of that class. And then that's what drove me. Combination of insecurity and curiosity. (laughs) It's driving me still today. It's a recipe
1: recipe for success, man. Isn't it fascinating though that uh, you had Mr. Risk I had a guy called Mr. Houston. There is that one teacher. There's that one teacher that simply gives you permission to be just what you are. No, that thing, that thing that you do, that's the thing that you should do.
0: And it's so extraordinary because in many ways, luck. Like, and I... uh, Teachers are so, so important. I'm not certain university itself, as it currently exists, is still important. But grade school education is so important because they can either make or break children. And often the kids that are different, they their difference doesn't become a positive unless it's discovered by some teacher. Now, with Mr. Risk, we have a bit of a history uh, as well that one day he he, he wanted, I didn't want to go to the library and he wanted me to go to the library. I was being assigned to the library. So, uh, he said, you're going to the library. And I said, I don't want to go to the library. I'm not going to the library. And he said, look, listen, Todd, you're going to the library. (laughs) And I, I looked at him and I said, fuck you. I'm not going to the library. He then lifted his hand up and slammed it off the table and said, yes, you are. Unfortunately, there was a pen underneath a paper that was on the table, and he broke his forearm. He shattered the bone of his forearm. Because of it. So God love you, Mr. Risk, uh, but I'm sorry for that. I went to the library that day. <laughs> he went to the hospital. <laughs> it was really unfortunate. And I owe him so much in my life. He was a moment in time.
1: I'm know. sure everybody listening has that moment. I'm yes. sure everybody, and I'm sure there are teachers listening that go, oh, another day of dodging staplers. They have to remember though, that one of those kids, you know, and I'm sure that's why teachers get into it. I'm, 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 I'm sure they do. And you know, when I think about uh, we changed George's school. Georgia was going to one high school and now she goes to another. When I think about the way she would talk about her teachers, when I think and and how she talks about them now, it's like far out, man. Like the difference that that can make. Because you're handing your children over to someone else's, you know idea of motivation someone else's idea of you know and they, their idea of motivation might be way beyond yours you know it could be like holy shit we've just jumped into the fast lane and we didn't wow this is beyond anything we could give this kid versus every time we drop her off it's like she goes down in the first gear again yeah. and you know as a society how we treat our teachers and you know, how, how we you know treat these people that we're there's got to be an economic case for it, but that's a whole other whole but the thing. But prob-
0: the problem is, though, is uh, I'm sure you've seen Ken Robinson's TED speech, right? Yeah, so, of course. Whoever hasn't seen Ken Robinson's TED speech, which I think is the most popular TED speech ever made. As it should be. Uh, uh, the system is broken. It is broken. and And it's a shame because what is rewarded in the general education system is memory. And I can teach you how to memorize. If, if anyone out there is worried about their memory or want to help their kids, visualization. Learn to visualize. If you learn to visualize, my oldest daughter Coco is quite good academically because she is, since she was young, she's, she's been an artist. So she can visualize, she can memorize incredible. She did so well in Mandarin. Coco was the top of her Mandarin class as a non-Mandarin speaker. And as you know today, what's happening is in Mandarin classes, there's a lot of parents from China with kids that just don't speak and they're learning as they go. Coco had no experience. And the reason she could do it was because she could visualize the characters. So visualization, but they don't, not necessarily, schools don't necessarily reward lateral thinking. And I would fundamentally argue having spent, you know, a lot of time in the corporate world, 10 years as a CEO, running a, quite a large company, that the last remaining competitive advantage an individual can have is, creat- is lateral thinking, is creativity. Everything else the machines can do, and they can do better than us. Predictive algorithms, learning machines can do all those things better, but they can't think laterally as we can yet. And that skill is probably the least focused on. And the second least focused on is sleep. Arguably the most important untaught life skill that exists, more important than diet, more important than exercise, sleep, not taught. My Coco recently came home with a booklet. She's learning sleep at school. I was so happy. Never mind geography, sleep. That's how you sleep defines how you are when you're awake.
1: How can people then kind of work that creativity muscle if, if it's something they've, they've never considered or how might, they might be thinking, oh, I'm not creative? How, would, how can you identify areas of your life where you are creative?
0: First, it's reframing what creativity is. For a lot of people, creativity is art, and that's confused. That's not true. It's a subset of creativity. So you might not be able to draw or, or paint, But that doesn't make you any less or any more of a creative person. There's a false dichotomy created by creative people to make them feel good. There are creative people and then there are others. No, 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 no. no. If you were born with a head, you're a creative person. It's just whether you practice that, whether you lay down that pathway in your brain through repetition and use over time, you get good at it. But everybody has that ability. And I think that's the first thing is reframing it. Uh, Then the second thing is, as a parent, uh, taking responsibility for developing it in your children and not relying on the schools to do it because, you know, the schools, not all, are trapped in a 130-year-old system. So practicing. And you can practice all the time, little things. Um, music is excellent, creative for the brain. You know, learning to play piano or learning guitar, or learning like anything that's going to stimulate your your brain that much will help with your lateral thinking. And then just when, for my girls, is always asking them, how and why that works. And is there another way of doing it? And becoming why kids, even though it's annoying when they're really young, is a really good skill when you're older. You know, if you're constantly trying to figure out why, you know, they've now done plenty of studies which have linked curiosity to success in life. Two things that they've now found, two major mental skills that they've now found statistically correlates almost directly with success in life in children. And the first one is emotional regulation which we've discussed. The bit. breathing. the yeah, checking breathing, in understanding, regulating when you're up and down, not avoiding, not avoidance, not that detachment and avoidance. That's not that. It's feeling it. And as men, I struggle. That's one of the biggest things I struggle with. Uh, so emotional regulation and curiosity. Two things that have a direct correlation to success in life. Both are learnable skills. Both are not, you cannot say, well, genetically, I don't. It's just not true. It is simply not true. That level of determinism is not accurate. They're both learnable skills.
1: It's fascinating because when you talk about the current school system, an amount of curiosity is acceptable and anything above that is like, sh- fucking Ginsburg, shut up. Yeah. All right, we've got to get this done. The bell goes in 20 minutes. All right, it's on the test. That's why. All right, that's the answer to your question. And that's it. it shuts down yep. and it's
0: over. Because difference is difference. Difference is not something special, mm. you know, it's like ADHD. So there's, there's a whole spectrum, right? Of, of, if you, if you, if you think of the brain, the spectrum is massive and everyone is on the spectrum, not, not the ADHD <laughs> spectrum, the spectrum of life, you know, yeah. with, with your brain and you come in and out, but they have, there's been studies that have shown that when, especially low levels of ADHD, when it's seen and reframed as a uniqueness it completely changes their outlook on life and how they develop and how they grow when it's seen as a, a glitch or a disorder that you have. I mean, if we are judging disorders, I have yet to have met a person in my entire life in all my travels who wouldn't fit on that spectrum. It degrees of everything. But, so it's, it's how things are framed in, in their minds, especially when you're really young and you think you're different and you know, like you were at school and, and you're thinking, well, then I'm wrong and they're right well that 's not true it 's a spectrum for sure like there's i 've always in my life been attracted to difference people that have and I think the brain is naturally attracted to difference, but people that have something unique about them and I, I find myself drawn to them for some reason
1: when you uh, first started getting into television and stuff like that, obviously with the with the career you 've had, there was obviously pathways. From directly from that career as as a CEO, where you could apply those, oh, I'm just doing what I do normally, but on telly. Yes. When and, and why did you start there? You know what? I really I want to start talking at a larger level about this other stuff that I'm into. Why was it so important for you mm. to do things uh, like that?
0: So first, I had no ambition or desire to be on television. That's it's not, the best way
1: to start yeah. it, man, like because then it's I,
0: authentic. I didn't grow <laughs> up wanting to be on television or have any inner desire. Or I thought to myself when I was young, I always wanted to be on television. What I always wanted to be was an adventure since I was a kid. Before I even knew advertising was a concept I was adventuring, you know. So I, I always wanted to be an adventurer, like an explorer. I, I looked up to those people. Like Ed Hillary was a hero for me, and, and I looked to Christopher Columbus, and I, I just thought, imagine, I would love that more than anything else. But I, I grew up in a family that didn't have a lot of money. So I had a massive, and still do in many ways, I had a massive insecurity around being financially destitute. Financial independence was my number one driver for many, many, many years. So I, even though my brother went off to be a very well-known entomologist, scientist, I only believed that I could make money watching um, Alex P. Keaton on, you know, on, on television, I uh, Michael J. Fox, I only believed I could make money in corporate world, in the advertising world, I thought it was the easiest because it was creative. And there's some incredible creative minds because it's one of the few industries in the world where creativity gets paid. <laughs> Most times creativity either gets sidelined, marginalized, or it's a nice to have. In the advertising world for all its darkness and things that it creates in society, it's filled with creative people trying to express themselves in some way, shape or form. Some of that good, a lot of that not good. So that's what I did. And then I, I, I started, I studied and then I ended up doing uh, an MBA. And then I got into advertising because, as I said, it was the halfway house for me, creative and corporate. And then I, I was reaching towards the end of that in my own mind. And I got a message on my desk while I was running this company saying, Andrew Denton would like to meet with you. And I knew of Andrew Denton, cause he's a legend. I didn't, you know, I was like, okay, sure. So John Casimir and Andrew Denton come to meet with me. And they basically say, we have this idea for a show. And the, it's basically this. And they explained it to me. And I said, no way. I can't do a show that is on some levels taking the piss out of advertising. While I'm running a 300-person advertising agency, <laughs> I can't do that, you know, or whatever it was at the time. And he then said that they went away and they said, "Okay, well, you were recommended to us. Would you mind helping us with a workshop?" Now, now, John and Andrew tell this story in a slightly different way, but this is what happened to me. This is my story. I then show up on a Saturday. I think it was a Saturday at the ABC. And they're going to start the workshop. And I'm thinking, I'm pretty good at workshops. I do it for a living. So I'm happy to come in and help them with their show. So they said, come in now. The workshop's about to begin. I walk in. There's Will Anderson sitting in the middle. There's three other people I don't know at a panel with four cameras looking at me. And they said, sit down. The workshop's going to begin. And they just did groom. <laughs> yeah. And I'm looking around going, "What is this the workshop? And they're like, yeah, this is a work. This is a TV workshop.
1: <laughs> and I'm thinking, this is not the
0: kind of workshop that I'm used to. So anyway, they filmed it. And then I got a phone call a little bit, a little bit after saying, Todd, uh, we'd like you to come back. Yeah. To do, I remember to do what Andrew or John, because John Casper was my main contact at that stage. And John said, but I spoke to Andrew that, uh, for that conversation. And he said, we need you to come back and do the sweat test. And I was like, what? Sweat test. And he, they said... <laughs> Do you know how some people go under the lights and the pressure and they just sweat profusely? Well, we can't really have that on the show. I think he was taking the piss, but anyway, I showed up, and uh, and that was it. And then it started. Yeah. And then when when the show became a success and it became kind of like a cult success, it had such loyal, loyal, loyal fans. I was getting asked a lot to do other things, and I had decided in my mind that I wanted to do something about my genuine interest not about marketing and advertising. I was already on the best marketing and advertising show, arguably in the world. So I just said no to anything to do with marketing or persuasion. And then I started to write ideas and concepts around adventures, around not, not science shows. They were adventure shows that had a backbone of understanding, using science. And so that was it. And then I, I decided to segue. And then as I segued over to that, I segued naturally out of my corporate responsibilities, which had always been my plan. Yeah. And that's how the two collided, really.
1: But when you, uh, when you had that kind of a foundation of what you'd already done, because you're familiar enough with viewers that you can then go, hi, I'm the guy in the T-shirt from the show. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't sweat on camera. Yeah, um,
0: we now know that.
1: <laughs> uh, here.
0: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom.
1: here i am now because you have seen me talking with authority you trust that when i talk that i know what i'm talking about now i'm over here talking about the brain yes well
0: that's yeah. interesting because the it's interesting you say that because i was doing the adventure stuff before i even knew advertising was an idea but because people only knew me from the advertising stuff the transition was different you know they were mm. like why is he doing that but i look at it and go well that's what i naturally that's my home Mm. the rest is stuff that i did as a job so there was a little bit of well why is he doing that but at the heart of it at at the very heart of it the the reason one of the reasons why gurun is so successful why it has so many lovely loyal fans is that gurun is not about advertising gurun is about life it's about the human mind persuasion how we get persuaded, how we get manipulated, how our insecurities get pushed, and how all of these things get us to oil the capitalist machine. But it's all about corporate psychology, really, if you if you break it down. And all the people in the panel, in many ways, are experts at that. And there are more highly paid psychologists in advertising than there are in the health field, which is an indictment on the health field and on advertising. But so... The the reason transitions to other things are not so difficult for people that are on that show is because they've spent most of their lives dedicated to trying to understand other people. And that's universal. That's not unique to advertising. That's across any industry. And persuasion and and psychology and, and understanding people's addictions and insecurities and how to manage people is a skill required across the board.
1: So when you started writing TV shows, uh, and I hope the answer is yes, were you like, Okay, so I'm going on these adventures when am i off time anyway. How can
0: I film them? <laughs> well, that's it. I would do them anyway. Yeah. You know, I would do them anyway. But now I do them with a purpose. Yeah. Because I believe that, you know, it's probably the reason you do podcasts. It, I, I would assume it's part of it. That by understanding others, we better understand ourselves. And so the premise of Body Hack is really simple. There are extraordinary people that live in the world. I'm going to go out there and see what we can learn from them whether they're cultures that are 13,000 years old or whether they're modern day you know, firefighters in America that are 19 years old. What can we learn from those people? And I know that, I know, because when I grew up on, in Canada, I couldn't travel to these places. And, but I can bring that to people's living rooms. In, for real. There's no, you know, in today's world, and you know this extremely well, in today's TV world, if you don't cook it, date it, or build it, it's very difficult to get made. Uh, And this is a local Australian show that brings these cultures from all around 12. I went to 12 countries in 18 months of extraordinary people, but there's something we can learn and take from them for our lives in each of them. And I can bring that to people's living rooms. And I take that quite seriously. It's It's a real privilege because when you understand others, you see yourself in it. You know, you go... Hmm, I'm a bit like that. Or that society's a bit like ours. Or why don't we try that? It's a it's a great mirror in some ways.
1: Uh, the honestly, the <laughs> I have a I have a thing uh, in my. Whenever I watch television, I'd ruin it for Audrey because it's the same as like after I, my first month in radio, I could never listen to radio the same because I'm like, I was analyzing the clocks. I could, I could analyze how many songs before an ad break. I knew exactly what song was going to come next. I knew the formula of any station. I would drive from one market to the next and go, Oh, they're doing secret sound. It's quarter past the hour. Here comes it. There it is. You know, Mm. ruined radio for me completely, right? So, uh, television, I ruin for Audrey all the time. I've had to learn to shut my mouth um, when we're watching things like Westworld. Fuck, look at that. That's an amazing shot. Shut up!
0: Mm. <laughs> you know? Now, but, by the way, that's why I've never watched one episode of Mad Men.
1: All oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the art direction and the lighting, amazing mm-hmm. on Mad Men. Uh, you may have some issues with the you know the premise of it yes. but it's probably one of the best lit television show um i used to be a lighting guy in my old life um probably one of the best lit television shows of all time cuz they do a lot of uh this is going to nerd people out um they don't do regular tv lighting they light it as if it were in an office building so a lot of light only comes from one side so they always light john ham short so he's, he's always got that extraordinary jawline and h- half of everyone's face is always in shadow so it's a very very well lit television show
0: i wish i could carry them around to 12 countries (laughs) in the middle of the amazon well i was going to say
1: i have a i have a thing about just how fucking good observational documentaries are now that drone photography is so affordable you standing on the banks of the ganges (laughs) just fucking with those funeral pyres behind you oh my god damn that's a fucking good shot let me tell you
0: let me i'm glad you say that because I, i take as much pride in the because people think, oh, observational documentaries, local Australian observational documentaries, they're going to have... It's going to be guy walking into a building speaking to people. I take huge... I mean, Discovery is behind the show as well, but I take a huge amount of pride in it being as entertaining from a cinematography point of view as it is from a content point Looks of view. Looks so good, man. And that shot that you're talking... So, you know, no longer... I am so... The editors, if they listen to this, they'll be laughing. I am so over transition shots. Because in film... In, in documentaries, often transition shots are walking shots. I wanted to do a spoof of my last series of walking shots of me just walking, using that as a transition to the next scene. Now it's all drones. We just bring it all up and transition visually, and that shot in the that shot in the Ganges. So I'd been to India. This is my second filming trip to India, and this this is the first episode with the holy men, the sadhus of India. It was one of the most extraordinary things I'd ever seen. Or I'm going to bring my kids. It is. It just blew my mind. I mean, it felt like Game of Thrones, except real. So you're along the Ganges, of which they dump the bodies, right? So it's the most holy city in India. A 100,000 people are burned there every year. So they're just carrying in bodies. But the Game of Thrones is, the speak of lighting, the lighting is incredible. And it's Fires that have been going for 3,000 years. Funeral
1: pyres that have never been extinguished. They've it's never been extinguished. Amazing.
0: They've been burning for 3,000 years. And I'm there to look for this special sect called the Agori that eat the dead. Uh, and they've been doing it for thousands of years. And this guy, they don't normally talk to people and they're quite uh, revered and, and a lot of people are scared of them and they often have, have entourage and all of that. And I remember in the filming. So they were, because this show is meant to be a family show. I, I I do it with young people in mind, that's a lot of the audience is young, but I also do it with moms sitting home with kids so they can have a conversation about what they see. And I remember the first edit, so the first rough edit, and they came back and the burning of the bodies was out. And I went, whoa, 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 hold on. Where's the actual body being burnt? And you could see it being burnt and the bone moving and stuff. And they, it was in, we shot it in slow, slow motion, you know, so they could actually see it. And they're like, oh, you know, it's a, it's a show on at 8.30 on Channel 10. I don't think we could. That's the whole point of the show. I want pe- I want mom to turn to their, the, to their son or to her daughter and say, that's what they do in their culture. Nothing we showed is gratuitous. Even though we show cannibalism and someone eating a vertebrae and stuff, like it's not gratuitous at all. It is looking at their culture as their culture is. I didn't ask anyone to do anything. You know, it's, it's, That is them. And the 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 harshness of it was we want to sanitize tv we want to make it shiny floor shows we want to sedate people the show's not meant to sedate the show's meant to stimulate Mm.
1: most most definitely and and the part you're talking about in the in the episode like by the time we're up to the man chewing on the 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 cervical vertebrae of, of uh, 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 someone who's died in a religious ritual, someone who's been burned in a religious ritual. By the time we're there, we've already seen you standing on the, of swords wrapped
0: around oh penises. God. So <laughs> I tell you, there's a couple of things that didn't make the film. The, so the guys are all naked. All right. I, I, on, I let, me
1: th- just, let me just quickly explain. So uh, uh, Todd went to uh, go see the sadhus of India, which you've probably seen photos of. They're the guys with the dreadlocks. They're naked. They're covered in ash and they have a particular, they pick by themselves, they pick a particular devotional thing that they will do yep. as a way to cause themselves extraordinary discomfort for within, to go back to your fMRI machine, to go back to your brain scanner, to cause themselves to be in this extraordinary pain, because it is in the dissociation with the pain that they find the uh, reverence and they find the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Enlightenment. That-, that is
0: such a brilliant explanation of the what it's about. I wish I would have said that in the making of it, but there we go.
1: I was emailing someone the other day, it's like, I'm not good at many things, but the one thing I've managed to get paid to do is explain wow. very complicated things in 20 words or less. That's amazing. <laughs> but yeah, so it's in that disassociation with pain. It is in those moments that they go, here is how I am, and they take it from a devotional framing, it's in this moment that I am going to bypass the karma system and not have to be reincarnated hundreds of times to achieve achieve nirvana. I'm going (laughs) to do it in this lifetime. But I have... A sword wrapped around my penis yeah. with 80 kilogram Todd Sampson standing on it. Yeah,
0: and I actually called in an ambulance because I didn't want to detach this bloke's penis. Fair enough. Like, I, they were like, ambulance? I didn't know what I was talking about. So we got this ambulance parked next to a cow, and I'm standing on the guy's penis. There were so many things that happened where I had to force my. Where your natural inclination is to take the piss the wrong way, but make light of the situation. And then you realize that you're talking about. A, a, a spiritual tradition that's thousands of years old that is ingrained in them. And now whether you believe that it's all one big uh, storytelling um, you know, a way of controlling society and it's one big long story told by multiple religions around the whether you believe that or not, you have to respect them. And so in the moment, I'm trying to be as, because I'm super inquisitive, I'm trying to be as respectful as possible. But when a man, they were doing yoga naked. And at one stage I was sitting there And one of the sadhus who was wearing all the beads walked past me and like his balls bounced off my forehead. And I turned to Toby, the cameraman, and I said, did you get his balls hitting me in the forehead? Because I just got hit with his balls. And Toby's like, got it. I didn't realize they would be naked the whole time because they shun clothing and they don't need that stuff. And they're all just walking around and it's all hanging out. And then the guy says, oh, come down and we got something to show you. And and he pulls out a a long sword. And I'm thinking, well, what's he going to do with the sword? And literally he wraps it around his penis and says, could you stand on the sword? So, again, I'm holding on to a naked man with a sword, with a penis wrapped around a sword. And I'm thinking, I'm going to rip his penis off. Like, that's it. It's going to be, speak of detachment. (laughs) But that wasn't the one that blew my mind the most. I'll tell you the one that really freaked me out and was the man whose arm had been up for 19 years. So he's had his arm up, and you know what was terrible? This didn't make the film, and it shouldn't have. He's had his arm raised for 19 years. Right, So it is now structurally reformed, so he can't put it down anyway. But the whole bloody time during the filming, I kept wanting to say, answer his question. Like, I kept thinking, because your natural inclination is someone's got their arm up, they're asking a question. So I kept turning to him and then like Toby or, or, or Jeff would say to me, he's not asking a question, Todd, stop leaning towards him. And his arm was permanently up. And that, that guy, there's something beautiful about his eyes, but there... There's something bizarre. Like I tried a half an hour of my arm up. And, and so the the gravity, your arm just goes to sleep basically because yeah. the gravity will pull the blood faster than you can kind of recuperate that, faster than your heart can push it. I mean the force is greater going down. So you immediately just lose feeling and you want to put it down. I think 19 years. Extraordinary.
1: When you were – a part of these other these, these men's devotion is also the – the ritualistic use of marijuana. A lot, a lot of drugs in our society. Oh a lot of drugs in our society. The pathway in came through ritual use of of sacred herbs that people found in the forest while they were adventuring. And particularly, my favourite one is, is ayahuasca, where it's like one plant from one side of Brazil combined with another plant from another side of Brazil F- from thousands of years ago. I don't know how the fuck they got them together, but this creates this this thing. And I've, I've some friends of mine take it in ritual and, and they've described many, many things. And if there's one drug that I wish that I'd tried before I went sober, it would be ayahuasca, but I'm, anyway, so it's gone. Anyway, so you're sitting down, uh, you know, you're at, a, you're, at a, you're at a temple and these naked men hand you a blunt that would make Snoop Dogg flinch. Yeah. How high did
0: you get? I'll tell you what, I had, we had to stop rolling because I couldn't remember anything and it has got to the point where I what? I was just being absorbed in the bizarreness of the situation so that I'm not a regular drug user, uh, but I've experimented with many things in my life and, but it was offensive to them for me to be constantly refusing when they're asking, they were a bit like, what's why, like, what are you judging us? It was their kind of view to me. Like, why wouldn't you, we're not saying it was interesting. Cause when I did take the, the marijuana, they stopped me. They said enough, enough. You know what I mean? Like they didn't want me to get blasted, so I couldn't explain what was going on. But they're high uh, pretty – probably they sleep for three hours. They're probably high for the other 21 hours of the day. It's just – they've been doing it for so long. So it was an interesting experience. And, but the point with them was around the benefits of it without judgment. So what are the benefits of marijuana? And we know those benefits. You know, mm. with pain particularly, it's been well studied. Uh, with uh, appetite, it's been fairly well studied. With that comes some side effects. And there was a big debate whether they should show me smoking pot on television because, you know, some kids look up to the show. And But again, I was like, this is the world. If we are genuinely going out there to show reality, their reality, then we've got to show it.
1: I was talking after I watched the episode. The first thing I did was, uh, I, I straight away I texted, he's, he's on location at the moment, but I texted, uh, the man that gave me my television career twice now. I texted Stephen Tate, who's one of the executive producers at Network 10. And I'm like, mate, it's a fucking triumph. And we were just texting back and forth because he was on set and couldn't talk, but just about the authenticity mm. of your storytelling. There's so, there, you know, now that incredible cameras are so small, tiny little crews of just two
0: people can travel around the
1: world and get access, you know, really low-profile access to places that, I mean, back in the day you wouldn't have needed four people and you would be changing film mags every 12 minutes and it makes a lot of noise and big lights and it's a really unnatural situation. But now that cameras technology is allowing such low-light capture and sound recording is so much easier and it can be on a fucking phone if you want, Access to places is so much easier, and so what's led to is a, a, a massive rise in this almost, and it's a great style. I do appreciate it a lot of the kind of Vice magazine or Vice Television style, but I often find that when I watch it, this is what he and I were talking about. I often find that when I watch that stuff, it does come with a a, a judgment. Yeah, and it does come with the stance of here I am at the NRA rally, and you know, but it's the the, the lefty who's snuck in and telling them that they're not a lefty, and but. There was something about the authenticity of your yeah. storytelling that I just, found, I just found so refreshing. And it was interesting hearing you then just trying to struggle with, with the kids, like, oh, fuck, okay. Mm. That's my thing getting in the way there.
0: Yeah, it's been, but it's been the issue. So, by the way, it's, I'm glad you mentioned that with Stephen Tate and Channel 10. So I've made the majority of my films with the ABC. And you get a kind of freedom with the ABC, and you often feel that you can only get that freedom with the ABC. Stephen Tate and Channel 10, we, I do not make a show for Channel 10. I make a show for, I think is a curious audience that wants something a bit more stimulating. I don't make a show for a commercial network. And everyone says, oh, you're gonna make shows for commercial network, they're gonna be commercial shows. Stephen Tate sees the content. And sometimes before Stephen Tate sees it, I dial up the graphicness of it, you know, the nature of it, the realness of it. And, every, and the editor, even my editors are going, oh, Todd, they're gonna to knock that back straight away. We're gonna to have to re-edit that. Every time I've shown something to Stephen Tate, he has gone, I think that's great. And my crew have been scared to show it to them. And uh, the only thing I will say about that is in addition to channel 10, just being brilliant in the making of the film and allowing me to make the film I want to make is that we often self-censor and self-censoring. Sometimes we do at such a level that we don't even notice as filmmakers, as people that make documentaries or any content on television. And we blame the networks for when the, when the content becomes average, but actually we made it average and then gave it to the networks. So, uh, I will say that. But the thing, I've, I've struggled with the killing. So I don't eat meat, uh, and not for moral reasons. I stopped eating meat 25 years ago, more for digestive reasons and health reasons than anything else. And I've killed a lot in, these, in this series, uh, in the last series as well. I killed baboons. I've eaten baboons. So someone someone doesn't eat meat, to eat a baboon, which is 95.7% human, is a weird thing to eat. In this series, in the Amazon, one of the worst kills for me was uh, the killing of a sloth. So cute, and so dead. And so unbelievably tasty. Uh, But I saw when I'm in the field. It's not do as they do and be stupid about it. But I feel that I owe it to them to at least try and be as present as I can, and do what they do. Now, if they shot someone killed another, you know, I wouldn't do that. I mean, obviously there's a, you know, isn't logic filter there, but, but I, am always torn. You know, I don't like killing animals. Like I, it's not my thing. I don't, I'm not into shooting and, and hunting and stabbing and beating and scraping. And, but I end up having to do it. And it, it's not as clean as when in Rome, but it needs to be close to that because then why go? Cause if you're this, as you said, white lefty, who's gonna go there and pass judgment on these people, that's completely unfair to them. Even though at times you want to, it's completely unfair to them because you've deceived them. Because for me, the show is about celebrating their uniqueness. It's not about having some undertone of how either stupid they are because they're different or, you know, some judgment. But that wasn't the worst So the worst, actually the worst drug taking was in the Amazon. So they, I'm in the Amazon and they're in this tribe, the Mazi tribe have this tradition they do to heighten their senses, their awareness while they hunt, hearing, sight, everything, touch. So I said, okay, I'll participate in this. We go out and we look for a frog and you, it's black in the Amazon, pitch black. And you just hear the frog and they're talking to the frog. And then we go in the Amazon- But they're using the calls. Calls. Yeah. So the, in darkness, and then we see the frog, right? They put a flashlight on this frog after we hear it. We then get, capture the frog. We capture two of them. Male and female. The female's bright green. And they let the male sit where it was. And we take the female back. We then stretch out the frog on four little stakes. Now, I kept thinking my kids are going to kill me. Imagine Kermit the frog with his legs pulled to four stakes, still alive. Now, she looked, like she didn't mind so much. So she's pulled on the stakes. And then we um, we start to pull her toes gently. Just little gentle pulls of her toes. And she sweats. And she sweats a white substance. And then they scrape the white substance off her and they put it in a jar. They then put her and then release her. And she seemed pretty happy. I don't speak frog, but she seemed pretty happy. They put her back. They then take that substance. They put it in a bowl and then the chief spits in the bowl. He then swishes that up. They took a stake out of the fire, a little twig out of the fire, burned three holes. There, there, there. Hey, I'm, three I'm just looking at scars yeah, on Tom's three arm. Three holes in my Tom's arm. And, uh, and then they put the poison inside those three holes. I thought I was gonna fucking die. It was so bad. I thought, unfortunately, I thought, that's it. That this is it. I'm going down right here, right now. can't do anything about it. It was so bad when my heart rate got down into the early 30s, going from, it skyrocketed up from 50 to 160 or something in seconds, and then dropped down almost to 30 flat, and the doctor runs in to give me adrenaline, stick it in my legs. He thought, this dude's gonna die right now. Doing this. And all I could remember thinking was, don't give me any more drugs. Just let this, let it run its course. I mean, if you tune in, you'll see what happens. But it was it was one of the most out of control, bizarre experiences. But this is a super funny moment that never made the film. So I often have to have people around me because I have to see a psychologist in between every episode. I have to get medically cleared and I have to see a psychologist it's in between. It's
1: important you don't take this stuff back to your family.
0: Every episode, yes. They have to unload. The psychologist had taught me the notion of seatbelt because I have an extreme optimism bias. I'm not a brave person. I just have optimism bias, as most of us do. So I believe it's going to be okay. So I try. So I have to have someone who's a seatbelt. Now, my seatbelt is my sound guy, Richard. So I always say to Richard, if you think I'm going too far, you need to say something. Take me out of the moment. So they have just burnt three holes in my arm. And Richard goes, Cut, stop. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, is there a snake or something that's come on to me? And Richard goes, stop. I don't, I don't think you should do this. And I go, well, why, why, Richard? And he said, because we'd already planned to do it. He said, because the guy spit in the poison and you could get hep B. I'm like, of all things that I'm worried about right now, it's not hep B, Richard. Thank you for that. But I'm past the hep B worry.
1: We can't all have fro- we can't all get you're like a mixture of chief spit and frog sweat burned <laughs> into us. But you know, surely through doing this show, you have found some things that you didn't do every day or didn't do as a practice in your life that you now Oh yeah, I, I now do this and my life's better for and what are the, some of those things we hmm. we were talking about how people might be able to enhance their creativity. What are some things that people might be able to put into their daily lives that you've discovered through doing these shows? Uh,
0: so there's lots. Uh, in But a lot of them are ancient things that it's just.
1: But I'm busy on my Snapchat.
0: (coughs) Yeah, true. I'm busy checking my Instagram. There's
1: fucking just dopamine, dopamine,
0: dopamine all day here on my phone. Rewiring you for more and more and more. (laughs) Uh, The One one thing that I learned from the Hadza, so a tribe in Africa who have been living the same way for 12,000 years, paleo. By the way, paleo Pete is not quite accurate. Just put that aside. (laughs) Uh, Just to let you know, because I I live with the people who have been doing it for 12,000 years, and that is not. Paleo Pete, as we currently know it today, is an excellent commercialized version of, of diet. It's not how they did it. But what I learned from them, which is an obvious one, is cut out a third of your diet. We eat way too much, way too much. So cut out a third. That whole notion of eat what's in your, only eat the size of your hand is a very good idea. It's a very good idea. And, and we, so a third out, that's one thing. Almost every culture and tradition that I saw, including this year's Kung Fu fighters, uh, firefighters, meditation. And now Tim Ferriss' podcast, which I listen to, he, he interviews the, some of the best minds in the world, whether they're presidents, whether they're actors, whether they're athletes, he's one of the best podcasts on the planet. Whether you like him or not, he's got one of the best podcasts on the planet. And he would claim that Now, his latest numbers, 90% of all guests have one thing in common, meditation, some form of meditation. So some form of breath control, not religious, no religion involved. It's breath control. It's the breath is the bridge to the nervous system. So firefighters, when I was running into these fires, these 19 year olds, it's they control their breath. That's what allows them to be brave is an awareness and an ability to slow down and move out of their sympathetic response to their parasympathetic response. And the latest science now says down to six breaths, six deep breaths can start to move you out of a sympathetic response to a parasympathetic. So from fight and fight, you know, like just, you know, want to run to calm, able to eat and relax. You are in control of that. So that's another thing. Almost all cultures, extreme cultures or people, they have some form of breath. Um, Exercise. All those cultures, most of them had no issues with uh, uh, obesity. So most of them, except for the Americans, firefighters, there was an issue with obesity. The reason more American firefighters die than any other fire unit in the world is because they go from zero to 100 and have a heart attack. So they're lying in bed flat out and they're obese and they're up to a fire and they end up having heart attacks. But the, almost all of them do some form of exercise. And the best exercise arguably in the world is not CrossFit, even though I like CrossFit. It's 20 minutes of brisk walking a day. I asked all the scientists for the Redesign My Brain series off camera, if you could do one thing for your brain, what would you do? And they said 20 minutes of brisk walking a day combined with some kind of cognitive training. So maybe memorizing license plates or doing something cognitively is the best because for most of us, we think early onset dementia, we think we have early onset dementia, but what we have is hypoxia because we're not moving enough. So there are just a few things that I've learned from these uh, different cultures and The fundamental premise of body hack, which is something I personally believe in from my own real life experience, is that we as humans are the ultimate, ultimate, ultimate survival machine. We are an unbelievably adapted physically, mentally, to survive, but we need stimulus. And if you imagine inside us, we have like a switchboard with millions of switches that have allowed us to adapt through evolution. We've turned them on, but through modern living, and now living with these cultures, it's not modern living, right? But in our lives, here in Bondi, we live the most comfortable, beautiful lives, especially in Australia. We live the 90% of Australians are middle class. Like it's we live an amazing life. But unfortunately, what we've done is we've turned off the switches. When we're cold, we turn on heating. You know, we don't thermoregulate, we don't do that. When when we're, you know, when we're tired or a little bit hungry, we eat immediately. Because we think that's what we should do. We turn the survival switches off, but we all have the ability to turn them back on. And for many of us, in order to do that in this kind of life, it has to be forced hardships. We have to put ourselves out there. It's like the brain. The brain development happens outside your comfort zone. That's how it happens.
1: What do you get out of turning those switches back on?
0: Uh, Well, first, you get an inner confidence because you realize how resilient you are as a human. And it also allows you to adapt to environments. So it's nice knowing that if someone dropped you in minus 40 right now, could you survive? Now for a lot of people, they would automatically say yes, but for a large majority of people, they would think I wouldn't be able to do that. But yes, you can. Or when you are stressed, super stressed in your life, can you survive? Well, yes, you can. You are you are built to adapt to that. Now you may have irregularities, you may have patterns that have developed over a long period of time, but you are built to adapt. You just got to practice and put yourself in a situation that allows you to adapt. Being adaptable would make people or knowing they're adaptable would make people a lot happier in their lives. In any situation, whether it's work, whether it's family, whether it's raising children, we, we have, we are an incredible survival machine, but for a lot of us, we don't push that. We live in the middle unhappily comfortably.
1: So knowing that, ah, All this work I've got to do, or I've got to suddenly one of the kids is sick. I've got to go and grab them and take them to the doctor, or whatever. I'm going to miss lunch. Knowing that, oh, I'll be fine. That could change a lot for a lot of people, rather than adding to the panic of. I've got this kid that I've had to take out of school, I've had to take off work and I can't feed myself. I'm going to be hungry until dinner. Ugh, panic, going to grab some KFC or something on the way, whatever. You know, it's like, actually, no, I'll, I'll be just fine.
0: I always say to my girls, it drives them crazy, right? When they get hungry or they're cold or they're complaining about something. I always say, they know it now, so they say it back to me. You've got three minutes without air, three days without water, three weeks without food. So you've only been hungry for one hour. You've got well over two weeks to go. And they just get so frustrated. They're like, because it's all instant. As you said, it's, it's all instant bites. We get everything immediately. And when I'm in these worlds, it's all taken away from me. So it's a bit like, okay, we don't have, we don't have that now. How are we going to adapt to that? Well, you are going to adapt to that because you're built like that. And I think ad- adaptability as humans is a good skill we could teach to our parents and for people that have depression and people that have uh, that are sad not depressed just sad in their lives or people that like or want to be successful athletes or want to be successful at work or it's it's all within us there's an incredible hope in plasticity, you know, in this, not just for the brain, but for the body that you can adapt You can, over time through stimulus, through awareness, you can adapt and you can achieve within, there are some limits, you know, physiological limits, but you can achieve a lot more than you think.
1: I can't tell you exactly my, my own personal experience, it's N equals one in my experience, like when it comes to the research that I've done, but in my own experience, I can't tell you how, it started with the juice frost that Audrey um, uh, inspired me to do. Um, where I, just went, I went three days just drinking juices and I, you know, I'd never fasted before in my life. I was uh, obese as a kid. I was in Weight Watchers when I was eight. So my relationship to hunger was a hunger pang, set off an anxiety response where I would almost panic eat, all right? So I, I just I, 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 everything had to stop until I had food in me, even if I was half an hour away or an hour away from a next meal, all right? So doing this thing was like, oh. Oh, actually, I'll be okay. And then once uh, when I, I experimented with intermittent fasting, I experimented with day-on, day-off fasting where i just go a whole day without eating. And I was like, fucking hell, I'm actually okay. Once the initial hunger pang has gone, then I had to learn about my insulin response. Once I learned that, oh, that, that hunger pang is just my glycogen running out and all I have to wait is 10 minutes or more. <laughs> and then, boom, the insulin drops and then the fat stores start getting accessed and I'm not hungry anymore. <laughs> I just got to wait 10 minutes. It'll be fine. And then... Once I did that, then I combined that with the – I started doing resistance training. I started doing weight training. That has played such a massive role in – because I started the weight training. Once I got off meds, I'm like, oh, fuck, I've got to do something. I can't just not take meds and expect everything to be fine. I have to change something else about what I'm doing. That has played such a massive role in how I am feeling now Mm -hmm. because of just the the reference point of like, well, I know that – I already knew, like, I I can ride 100 miles up a mountain in Utah, which I've done. Like, so this little challenge here, this is going to be fine. And it's taking that mindset and then picking it up and putting it down on a work framework, all right, when something's challenging, going, you know what, this little thing right here, this is is not 10 kilometers of of 8% grade of riding that's going to take me an hour and a half to do. So I'll be all right. I'll just have to do 10 minutes. like exactly what you're saying is, has brought me such, you know, but to know that 20 minutes of brisk walking a day uh, could do that. Um, the caloric restriction is fascinating though, taking one third of
0: your food out. I mean there's lots of – like I've been studying fitness because if you're going to do it, I mean to not study fitness just feels like a weird thing for me. Mm. It's like a manual of life. Because fitness is not about, it's not a narcissism thing. It's, it's a, it's, it's what allows you to do anything you want to do in your life. Like anything. It, again, it's like a passport. It's like, if you're fit, you can go places. If you're not, you can't go to those places. Yeah. I mean, it's just literally, it's that simple.
1: My parents-in-law are uh, uh, just in their sixties. Now they've retired and they are out and about exploring the world, oh. running around Mexico, having a great time. That my absolute worst nightmare is retiring at 60 and then sitting on the couch because the set of stairs is my enemy.
0: So the thing the thing i'd say about food right because if you're and you're raising a girl as well it's very it's not easy and part of it is to do with all the many hours i've spent in my life manipulating uh people for their insecurities again to, to eat more food uh in advertising but it's very tricky with girls and the the thing i would say that i learned again from the hadza in their diet is the hadza have no relationship with food i have no relationship with food so i have no emotional connection with it to me if I could take, if I could get all my needs in one pill, I'd never eat again. I got no connection to food except as fuel for my body. So I learn what I need to do when I eat. So I don't eat based on how I feel. I I eat based on what I need, you know, to, to whether I'm training or whatever I'm doing. And in a weird way, the Hadza are very similar. So the Hadza, they like eating, but they they hunt to eat. And if they don't have food, they don't eat, obviously. There's no storage. There's no refrigeration. There's nothing like that. So they they learn to appreciate it when they have it, but they're not emotionally going, oh, I'm feeling a little down today, so I'm going to have X because they got to hunt it. They got to find it and get it. So the thing... If your relationship with food is always about how you feel, it's a tricky relationship. It is a very tricky relationship because food is a drug, just like anything else that you're putting into your body. What I always say to my girls, and I said this since they were very, very young, I always say to them, you eat until you're full, not until you're finished. Because how we grew up, and I'm sure it's similar, with I was always told, finish your food on the plate. Well, that's terrible advice. That, that's, that's from the famine days. <laughs> like, no. No, no, no. If you're full, now, my, when my girls were six, they were tricking us and saying, I'm full. You're not full. You've had one piece of lettuce. You're not full. But it's get them into the habit of feeling, you know, like physiologically knowing they're full so they can stop. And it's not about, you don't eat based on your emotion. You eat based on your needs. Like if you're super active, you will feel your body wanting more food. You will know. It'll signal to you, you need more food. If you're not active, then you need less food, clearly because you're not burning, because it's a ratio between how much you burn and how much you put in. You know if you're not active. So it's in the West now, we have such an emotional relationship with food. It's not about fuel. It's, I like that, and I want to eat lots of it. Well, that's not an ancient, that's not how the ancient cultures lived. They didn't have that relationship. It wasn't about like, it was about
1: need. I'd be interested to... Uh, rewind the clock back and try and find the etymology of the phrase comfort food. I'd be interested to go back and find when that, when that came into our world because once it gets labeled, mm. then it's, and it's a big thing in the States, obviously. I, I lived there for a long time, and it's definitely like, when you need the comfort food, you need Arby's. Like, fuck
0: okay. it. No, you don't. <laughs> comfort food would have been an advertising creation. Yeah. It's similar to, you know, uh, comfort drugs. Because you know, you you avoid what when you're stressed, you avoid what you need to do, and you go towards your 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 want side, your darker side, which is often referred to as comfort food, the things you don't need, you know, at the Mm -hmm. time. And I'm sure that I'm sure if you trace that back, it's an advertising or marketing creation in some way, shape, or form. I just, it must be
1: like with me and radio, you must just be like Neo in the final seat of the Matrix when he's facing off Agent Smith and just sees nothing but code. Watching the world from where you are, like when you're in these places, all right, like I only know from like, from when my experiences, like when I try and get away, um, when you notice the first billboard on your way back into town, and you're like, ah, the messaging begins. Yes. Like, how is it for you just like walking through the world, just seeing messaging everywhere?
0: Yeah, it's, it was really bad. I mean, in fact, in many ways, Andrew Denton and John Casimir, the grew and ruined my whole advertising career because when you – often in the industry, which I loved, by the way. It was an amazing industry to work in. But you do a lot of it unconsciously. Like most jobs, you do it unconsciously, but groom is all about making it conscious. And I was just trying to be, I'm just trying to be honest. I'm in the same way in the boardroom as I am on the television, exactly the same. Mm-hmm. And when you are that conscious over a long period of time, it's, it's pretty full on. I, the thing I remember most was, I used to do these Vipassana retreats, 10 days of silence here. It's a beautiful thing if you've never done that before. It's, it's hard, but it's amazing. And so you're in silence for 10 full days, no one's speaking, no one's looking at each other. But I remember the drive in on Parramatta Road, every time. So first the sounds start, you know, because you're the lights that you see the signs, they're all coming at you. And it it is, I, I imagine to me, it feels like you're going down the tube for birth. You know, and you're just like, oh, and then boom, you're into this capitalist, you know, mm.
1: advertising,
0: marketing world where you know you're getting yeah. hit with five thousand messages a day, and it's everywhere around you. Yeah. But only through this vipassana do I feel, or traveling to these cultures that I feel I'm totally taken out.
1: Yeah, yeah. You t- we talked earlier about in the in it, we're, we're we're rapidly approaching probably faster than anyone can possibly expect uh, a future where. uh Anything that can be automated will be automated. Any kind of anything that's not like a, anything kind of process work mm. will be done by a machine, mm. and s- people are going to have to figure out other things to do. You mentioned creativity, but then you also mentioned turning these switches back on. Insiders, I always wonder. I find oh, it's interesting to get your thoughts on this. Like people like you who are exploring the things that our bodies can do anyway, but we've just forgotten that Mm. we have these superpowers. People like you, people like Wim Hof who are like, no, I can sit in – speaking of firefighter suits, I can sit in an fMRI machine, have a firefighter suit that is basically a wetsuit with tubes inside Mm. it that is pumped with zero or minus zero degree water so they can run into burning buildings and not incinerate like a marshmallow, but keep my my skin temperature at 37 degrees just through my brain, not even breathing. Mm -hmm. Like – I'm fascinated it's like, is that the next, as humans, like, well, we've got to find something to do with that time. Is that the next thing that we start exploring these things that our bodies can already do? I'll, I'll be interested to yeah, see what happens.
0: Uh, look, the thing, the thing that's worth noting is that, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, include, like, I'll include Wim Hof. He probably would not agree with this. Just, just ordinary people. Mm. I've got no special gift. In fact, I'm one of the few people on the planet who knows, I'm, from a brain perspective, I'm ordinary. Because mine's been analyzed for 26 hours on three continents. I know that. But that doesn't mean your ability is ordinary. It doesn't mean what you can do is ordinary. It just means you have to take advantage and use and turn on and do all these things. So it's, it's not that they are extraordinary people doing extraordinary things. It's just ordinary people doing extraordinary things and then learning from that because it, that's it, it, a difference. Wim Hof's a little bit dangerous in what he does, some of that stuff. You know, some people nearly died doing some of Wim Hof's stuff because it's, it's so extreme. But Wim Hof is just a form of meditation. What he does is literally is just a form of meditation. I, I think, unfortunately, it won't be that, what you're saying. It won't be about exploring how far our bodies can go. It will be about stepping outside our minds. So I think th- you can see the evolution so this whole notion of limitless drug, which is based on modafinil roughly, you know, so you can take modafinil now and you have unbelievable concentration levels, so, but, but your creativity is low and uh, friendly fire and military, lots of deaths because you can only do one task really well, but you can do that task unbelievably well. So what they're mapping and working out right now is exactly the stimulus required to get you to do lots of different things that you thought was not possible through drugs And that is definitely coming. And then if you already, I mean, soon, like modafinil or variations of the modafinil drug in Australia, we are the third largest in the world usage among university students. I mean, if you're at university and you're not taking some kind of brain stimulant drug, well, how are you going to compete with the people that are, that can sit down for seven hours and concentrate. And so that, I want to do a series about this, that, that these sort of brain drugs is definitely leading us in that direction to the point where you will be able to pop, you know, Joe Rogan, all these guys, Asprey, all these guys talk about this. They're all doing sort of alternate uses of drugs for their brains for stimulation and going, I think that's coming now in the medium term, but in the long term, it will be AI. It will be virtual. It will be, you just won't be here, right? But you'll be somewhere else, right? Because if you imagine the implications of that, so, remember, you know, visualization, what you visualize happens in your brain. So it's very basic, but if you visualize happiness, you can feel happiness. The Stanford study with the piano playing was they had two control group. They had one group playing the piano, sitting down playing the piano. They had the scanners hooked up to measure their finger flex on movements in the brain. They had one group playing the piano. They had one group sitting at the piano and visualizing playing. Exactly the same brain development. They never touched it. Now, amplify that to, to virtual, AI and virtual reality. How much are we going to be able to change the brain? We can go. You can go to war, literally go to war. You don't know you're not in war because you're visualizing it. You are in a war. And so I'm just imagining what that future is going to be like. I mean, I've seen some of the latest. I used uh, virtual reality to help me with the wire walk. The, man, I mean, it's, your brain doesn't know any different. It, that is what's happening to the brain. <laughs> and, you know, and that's also the danger of allowing kids to watch news and negative and violence and because they're being rewired. Because if you see it and you visualize it, it happens to you. And, but AI is going to take that to a completely different level. So I, I think I looked at Steven Spielberg's latest Player One movie and that, that almost seems like a documentary to me. <laughs> I look at that and go, that is, that's here. Like, that is here. There are people doing that now. That live in that world, but imagine as that develops. We are still in the black and white film stage of virtual. Imagine when it moves.
1: Yeah. Interesting about the modafinil, like we talked very early on in this conversation about the effects that the access to tea and caffeine had on some companies, uh, feeding it to their workers so they could pull a 10 hour shift rather than, you know, or. Back then it would been be a 16-hour shift because they just died on the job uh, versus, you know, an eight-hour shift until they just fell over. Like companies using these kind of drugs to get a competitive advantage on the bottom line, that, that kind of stuff is, is wild. Um, when I hear you talk, Todd, when I hear you talk, I hear, you know, I'm looking at a man about my age. I'm hearing a seven-year-old kid on a Saturday morning with a backpack <laughs> on, yeah. busting out the door. Yeah. Cuz I can't wait to go explore.
0: Yeah, it's I'm I'm super fortunate. Like that job is the best job in the world. I never thought it would be a job, and it is the best job in the world. And it's it's endless because everywhere there are people doing interesting things that are also exploring and things to learn from, you know. So, uh The Body Hack series was the the second series was one of the hardest things I filmed, but it's you know, how lucky are you to get to do that? I mean, you're when I was a little kid, I just imagined with my backpack that I would see, you know, like I used to frame it as Asia because I didn't know the Orient. I didn't know any better. I was from a farming kind of community in Canada. And I used to think someday, someday I'm going to go to this country and see how people live. And I never realized that I would actually have a, with 27 bags, uh, and with camera gear, but, uh, I, I would be doing that. And it's such a privilege and I'm lucky.
1: And what's also, you know, just to to, to put a button on it, yes, you're finding extraordinary people, but they're just humans. Mm. They're just people Mm. who have exactly the same physiology that I have.
0: Yeah, just different switches on
1: figured out how to turn that switch on
0: exactly i look at them and i go those 19 year old firefighters i go how do they like how do they do that or how how does how do they survive in mongolia in minus 30 and with the eagles and how how do they and i just look at them and go they're just like us except they've adapted and their adaptation some cases may have taken generations in some cases it doesn't but it it, it proves the point which is we are much more adaptable than we think. And I don't think there's ever an ideal or perfection. You know, it's not like you get to a stage because there are always someone doing something completely different. And you go, because the difference is what's interesting, how they've adapted to it. You might not need it. You might not need, if you're living in Australia, to be able to adapt to minus minus 40. But it's good to know you can.
1: It's good to know you can. Man, I'm so excited. (laughs) I'm so excited for Australia to see this. I'm so excited for the reaction that people will have, just the episode that I saw, the stuff in that, and I I consider myself a very open-minded person uh, about most things, but the stuff in that, I'm like, this is going to be prime time? Mm. Fuck yeah, this will rattle some cages.
0: Yeah, I I thought the same thing. When Channel 10 (laughs) came back and said, we're not going to, we're not going to pixelate the the nakedness, I was in shock. I said, are you sure? I went back to Steve and I said, are you sure? You don't want to pixelate that? And they're like, The only way they would pixelate it is if it was in a promo out of context, because then that's gratuitous. It's like the cannibalism. They won't, they won't promo the cannibalism. I get it. I get I mean, my, I resisted that when I heard it, I went, really, that's a main part of the episode, but they're right. If you promote out of context, it's sensational and it's you you don't get the context and, and it's not cannibalism as in I'm going to vomit when I'm watching it. It's I'm telling you for me, this is family TV. It's for kids. So I, that's how I framed it, even though there's someone chewing on a, a skull. But I get that. Don't promote it because if you promote that, it's gratuitous and it's out of context. And India is an incredibly beautiful, eclectic, colorful place where we could all learn something from. It just happens that this sect is, uh, is a little bit out there.
1: I'm sure that if there was an entire society of people that did that and they looked at me... You know, with my weird machine that I rely on for this particular coffee drug that yeah. I have to have in the morning, otherwise I'm a grumpy motherfucker. Looking at this tiny little device in my hand that I keep fingering and and writing to people I don't even know, and allowing their emotional responses—people like complete strangers to me—make my body feel something. I'm sure they look at me and go, "Fucking weirdo! You know,
0: <laughs> why is he doing that? Why does he keep pulling that thing out and looking at it?"
1: Yeah.
0: So I'm sure it's the same. I'm sure it's the same. Yeah, but from- it is It is a bit of, you know, the show is, it's not normal for primetime. And I respect 10 for doing that because they have no, it's the second series that they've done of this. And it was pretty out there the first time. So I just respect that. Not all TV. I, I watch The Bachelor with my girls. There's a role for all types of TV. Some people want to be relaxed. Some people want to be, they want downward comparison. They want to think they're better than what they see on TV. And there's a role for TV that's uh, sort of adventurous and a little bit intellectually stimulating. And I'm trying to make that of the big jigsaw puzzle of television. I'm trying to make that piece. I don't judge the other pieces because I watch those other pieces. I just want to make that piece. And,
1: and why do you want to make it?
0: I think there's a role for it. I think there's a role for local, Australian, thoughtful documentary making that has adventure and an educational level to it. Because I think that if the shows inspire five people or five kids or make them want to go either see the world or try a form of meditation or, or you know, whatever, you know, in each episode, there's, uh, hopefully there's something to learn in every episode, then that's job well done. That's job well done for me.
1: Awesome, buddy. I'm so grateful you came around. I'm so grateful you enjoyed the biscuits.
0: Oh, wow. I just powered through those biscuits, didn't I? Oh. I must say, though, I only got halfway through the coffee because I was a little bit scared of it. It's not that I saw a frog in it, but I was a bit like, sure <laughs> you have powerful coffee.
1: <laughs> I'm just going to shoot your photo, okay? Yeah, man. Cool, man. Thank you. That was Todd Sampson. You can find him on Twitter, Todd samson oz t-o-d-d-s-a-m-p-s-o-n-o-z body hack starts on thursday night in australia 8 30 p.m network 10 don't miss it you can catch it on 10play.com.au as well i hope your week is excellent whatever you're doing thank you so much for being here if this is your first episode hey we made it we're here we did it i hope you enjoy exploring the back catalogue there's 235 others to choose from let me know what you think if you want to buy the book, you'll find the link in my Instagram bio. If you do, email me, send us your email at gmail.com and I'll shoot you something special to say thank you. A big thank you this week to Andy Ma, who edited this episode and put their audio production together. Haley Manspania for making Todd and I have the ability to be in the same place at the same time, which was no mean feat. Toehider for all the music and Anamitra on Upwork, who's done all my video this week. Thanks, Anamitra. You're awesome. Until we speak next time, thank you so much for listening. Sleep well.